I invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and bow in worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out the young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, We will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to say it. Merry Christmas. There we go. I don't know what this Merry Christmas Eve. I'm not going to see you guys tomorrow, so I'm just going to say Merry Christmas. Uh, good to see you. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name's Chris. Uh, I serve as a lead pastor here. And if you are new to First City Church, uh, here, here's what we want you to know. As a church, our heart above everything else is that you would know the grace of God, that you would know the power of the gospel in your life. And so that goes for whether you are a confident believer in Christ and maybe you're looking for a church home and you've come here on Christmas Eve to kind of check out what First City is about, we want to welcome you. And if we have any questions about the church, uh, please let us know. We would love to be able to answer uh, any questions that you may have. Uh, if you're here this morning and maybe you are unsure of what you believe, uh, you're, you're kind of wrestling through, you have questions, understand that you are welcome here this morning. We would love to get to know you, love to hear whatever questions you may have. Love to just sit down and hear your story. And so if that is something that, that you would want to do, uh, please reach out. We would love to be able to do that. Or if you're here this morning and you don't have faith at all, you would say, I don't, I don't believe in any of this, but I'm here Christmas Eve uh, with friends or family member. But if something this morning provokes you, something this morning raises questions in your mind, and you would love to talk further, know that we would love to sit down and have that conversation with you. No hard sell, no push. Uh, just sit down and, and hear your story. We'd love to be able to do that. Uh, we want to extend hospitality to you wherever you are because the grace of God meets you wherever you are and we want to proclaim that grace to you. So if you haven't opened your Bibles or your Bible apps, please do so. Uh, as Ian read for us, we're going to be in Exodus 24, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, we have been in a series in the book of Exodus this fall and this is uh, our last message in sort of this chunk of the book of Exodus. We'll pick it back up uh, later next year. 
Uh, and the title of my message this morning is A Meal on a Mountain. Now, I hope that one of the most enjoyable parts of this time of year for you is being able to sit down with family and friends to a meal. I hope that is enjoyable. And even perhaps if it isn't, you recognize there's something missing there. There's a longing that it would be good. Because sitting down to a meal is a beautiful and powerful experience. So consider this. If I were to put up this picture, what sort of thoughts and feelings are evoked? Now how about this next picture? What do these pictures symbolize? Things like family, friendship, togetherness, closeness, joy, celebration, deep relationships. All of these things are symbolized in the picture because what are those folks doing? Eating together. You see, a meal both symbolizes these things, but it also shapes these things. Meals have this power of creating and strengthening relationship. It's really interesting because, on the one hand, there's, there's really nothing glamorous about eating. Like, eating is something we have to do to live. It's just a normal function that we have to do. And, and we can approach it just sort of, let me eat my food and then move on with my day. So we can, we can be very functional about it in some ways. We can treat it almost as just something I have to do. But at the same time, how amazing is it that when we sit down and share a meal with someone, when we sit down and do this very functional, I need to do it to live kind of activity with other people, that it has this power to build relationships. Have you ever thought about that? Ever considered how powerful it is? A very functional task turns into something beautiful and powerful and personal when we share a meal together. So let me ask, if you could share a meal with anyone, who would it be? Like if you could share a meal with anyone famous, who would it be? So I was asked this question one time for a job interview, and I answered Steve Carell, Brett Favre, and Ron Paul. So this was back in 2010, and so I, the office was still on, and I was a huge fan of the office. And Steve Carell just seems like a, a genuinely nice and funny person, so I thought it'd be fun to share a meal with him. And then Brett Favre, like, I, I don't, I, I'm not a Packers fan. I am definitely not a Packers fan. And I wasn't really a big Brett Favre fan, but again, he seemed like a kind of a cool dude to sit down and have a meal with. One of the ladies interviewing me was also a huge Packers fan, so I may have been manipulating her just a little bit, Maybe. And then Ron Paul, I, you know, in 2010, I was going through my crazy libertarian phase, and so if you know, you know. And so sitting down with Ron Paul would have been a really enjoyable experience. Now, part of the question is to, to get a sense of who I am and, and sort of what interests me. But what's also interesting about the question is when, when we're asked, we think about people we want to sit down and have a meal with, what, what, do, what do we sort of envision? We envision a personal connection. We envision this famous person, this person that is known for something either good or bad, and we're sitting down with them, and sharing a meal means I've connected with this person. I've had a personal moment with them. It wasn't just say, hi, handshake, sign an autograph. No, I've actually shared a meal, had conversation, had this personal moment with them. That's the power of a meal. 
That's the power of sitting down with somebody at a table and making a connection. All of this by sharing a meal. In Exodus 24, we see a meal being shared. A meal on a mountain. And this meal, in many ways, is the culmination of all that has taken place in the book of Exodus so far. Everything that has taken place in the first 23 chapters has all sort of been driving to this point in Exodus 24. This, everything has been leading to this, this moment, this meal. And so let's take a moment to sort of recap where we have been throughout this study of the book of Exodus. If we go all the way back to the beginning, we read how the people of Israel were enslaved to the nation of Egypt. They were living under harsh and oppressive conditions. So the Lord comes to a man named Moses and tells him this, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the Lord comes down to rescue Israel out of slavery. He calls Moses to be the one to lead them out. But this rescue was more than just political freedom. As the Lord tells the people of Moses or the people of Israel in Exodus 6, he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And here it is. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. The Lord is going to redeem them. Why? So they can be in relationship to him. He redeems them so that they will be his people. He will be their God. Relationship is the end, the goal, the purpose of rescue and redemption. And as we see, the Lord does indeed execute great acts of judgment. He brings Egypt to its knees through a series of plagues, plague after plague after plague, until finally Pharaoh relents and lets Israel go. And this final plague is particularly significant Judgment on the firstborn. Judgment on the firstborn of all living things that live in the land of Egypt. Why is judgment going on to the entirety of the land? Because everyone has sinned. Sin has covered the entire land. All had served or were serving false gods. However, God provides a way of escape. He provides Israel a way to escape judgment by putting the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the doorposts of their house. Israel is redeemed. They're bought back from slavery and judgment through blood. The lamb that was killed in their place, taking their judgment. And then that night, when the Passover lamb was slain, and Israel put blood on their doorposts, what did they do next? They sat down and had a meal. When blood was shed, a meal was served. And then, leaving Egypt, the Lord, he doesn't immediately take Israel to the promised land. Rather, he leads them through the wilderness, and he leads them through this dramatic showdown at the Red Sea, where he destroys the Egyptian army. He provides water for them where there is no water. He provides bread from heaven. He gives them victory over 
the Amalekites, over and over and over again, the Lord is showing himself faithful. He's providing, he's protecting as he leads Israel through the wilderness. And finally, after three months, he leads them to Mount Sinai. And this is where we picked it up at the beginning of the fall in chapter 19. The Lord brings Israel to, to Mount Sinai for an important purpose, to enter into covenantal relationship with them. As the Lord tells Moses at the beginning of chapter 19, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So all that the Lord had done in rescuing and redeeming them, all that he had done in bringing them through the wilderness and bringing them to this place of, of this mountain where he is going to meet with them, all of that so that he could enter into covenantal relationship. Here's what the Lord is doing in this moment. He's formalizing, he's making it real and concrete, this relationship. He's keeping his promise all the way back in Exodus 6. I am going to be your God, you will be my people. Here it is happening in a formal way. He's making it concrete. It's not just nice words and good feels. No, it's real. It's a real relationship, a real covenant. God keeping his promise. And in making this relationship a covenant, it means that this relationship matters. It has teeth to it. It's important. It's going to be lasting and forever. A covenant is a binding, lasting, forever commitment. Israel isn't just going to be in casual relationship with the Lord. They're not just dating or hanging out on the weekends. No, this relationship was going to be of the utmost importance, the utmost commitment. And so Israel is no longer their own. They're in covenantal relationship with the Lord, and there are expectations, there's commands, there's statutes that they must follow. And the Lord gives these to Israel in chapters 20 through the beginning of chapter 23. And listen, the law, the covenants, the statutes that the Lord gives to Israel, these are not meant to be some burdensome, heavy-weighted thing that pulls them down, drags them down, keeps them under this, this sort of oppressive uh, deity. No, these words are words of life. This is a law of life. God's law brings righteousness and goodness and truth and justice and beauty. It's a path of wholeness and flourishing. Flourishing by worshiping the one true God. Flourishing for a family. Flourishing for your work. Flourishing for your, your marriage. A flourishing by living under the freedom of walking in truth. Flourishing that comes when we overflow with graciousness and generosity. Flourishing that happens when we are content and satisfied rather than angsty and anxious and unsettled. The Lord gives his word to his people to bring them life. The Lord gives them his word because he is good. The Lord is blessing these people with his word so they can be in relationship with him. He is holy, so his people must be holy. He gives them his word to shape them as a holy people so they can be in relationship to a holy God. God gives his word as an act of relationship. Do you see God's word this way? Do you see God's word spoken to you as God engaging you in relationship? God calling you to relationship. 
Yes, God is calling you to righteousness and goodness and truth and justice and mercy. He's calling you to follow his word and not sin. But do you see in all of that, God is calling you to relationship. He's calling, him to, calling you to himself. And so what we have in Exodus 19 through 24 is one long covenant ceremony. At the beginning of Exodus 19, the Lord offers covenant to Israel. Israel is like, yes, we will do everything that you say, even though they don't know what he's going to say yet. They're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And so then the Lord says, okay, the next three days, I want you to prepare yourself, wash your clothes, consecrate your hearts, because in three days, you're going to meet me. I'm going to come down on this mountain, and I'm going to speak to you. And so Israel does that. Moses brings them out to the foot of the mountain. God descends on the mountain in fire and smoke and earthquake. It's quite a sight. And then he begins speaking. And he speaks 10 words, the 10 commandments. And then what happens? Israel's like, that's really intense. God, we'd prefer you not speak to us. You can speak to Moses. And then whatever Moses says, or whatever you tell Moses, you can come tell us. And so that's essentially what happens in chapters 21 through the beginning of chapter 23. Moses goes up. God gives him the commandments, the statutes, the law. And then Moses comes down and he's going to share what the Lord has told them at the beginning of chapter 24. This is what chapter 24, 3 tells us. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord. So this is all that was spoken in chapters 21 and 23. Then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Again, this is a, a, an act of obedience, saying we are going to be part of this and enter into this covenant. And then from there, after the people agree we're going to do all the Lord has commanded, Moses sets up an altar, which represents the presence of God. And then he sets up 12 pillars, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So God and Israel present together in this covenant ceremony. And then Moses offers up burnt offerings. He has young men go and help them, and they offer up burnt offerings, and they sacrifice bulls as a what? And it says in the text, as a fellowship offering. He splatters blood on the altar, and then he again reads the words of the covenant scroll to the people, and they again say, we will do and obey all the Lord has commanded. And then as we read in 24.8, Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Again, we have blood being shed. What's up with the blood? Why is it present in this ceremony? Well, two particular reasons. On the one hand, the covenant is sealed in blood. Blood sealing the covenant speaks to the strength with which this covenant is entered into. It's not casual no, it is sealed in blood, meaning it is of the utmost commitment. To seal a covenant in blood is to say, I am giving my entire life to this commitment. If I break this covenant, I forfeit my life, but the way that I live in this covenant is with my all, my very being, my very life I give to this covenant. It speaks to the strength of it. Now, the Lord does not bleed. He does not have a body, but Moses puts blood on the altar representing the Lord to signify just how all-in God is. He's all-in, completely. But there's another reason that there's blood here. If we go back again to Exodus 12, when blood was shed as atonement, blood here is also shed for atonement, for redemption. Blood is shed 
so that Israel can enter into a relationship with the Lord. Just as they had sinned in Egypt, they had sinned in the wilderness. They were guilty of judgment. They deserved judgment. They didn't deserve relationship with the Lord. They didn't deserve covenantal communion with the Lord. They whined and complained and doubted God the whole way to Mount Sinai. And yet here the Lord is making provision for them. He is making it so that they can be in relationship to him. See, God is good. He's just. He doesn't let sin go unpunished. He doesn't just go, oh, sin's no big deal, whatever. No, he deals with sin. He takes it very seriously because it violates his character and it violates what is true and good and it does damage and destruction in our world. And so God must deal with sin because he is good and he's just. And he does that. Blood is shed. Blood is shed so that Israel does not have to experience the judgment of God. Blood is shed so that they can be redeemed and atoned for and forgiven. Blood is shed so that the sin that separated them from God could be covered and so that they could have a relationship with God. So this lamb, or these bulls, excuse me, these bulls take the judgment that Israel deserved. Blood is shed. Israel is once again covered by blood. And what do they experience? Fellowship. It's a fellowship offering. Blood is shed so there can be relationship. And then notice what happens after blood is shed. Verses 9 through 11. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. Once again, blood is shed, and a meal is served. So Moses, his brother Aaron, Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders, they go up on the mountain. Again, this is part of the covenant ceremony, and they see the Lord. Now, they don't see the Lord in his fullness, in the fullness of his glory, otherwise they would have dropped dead, but the Lord appears to them in some way so that they can see him. And we don't get a lot of detail. I mean, you can just imagine the sight. Imagine what they saw, and yet Scripture gives us very little detail. The one bit of detail we get is that it looks like there's a pavement made of lapis lazuli at the feet of God, or at God's feet. Now, Men, next time you go and buy jewelry for your girl, skip the diamonds, skip the pearls, and go for the lapis lazuli. Obviously, this is a very precious stone, precious something that, that is meant to signify beauty. Now, the closest sort of correlation to this is probably something like a sapphire. It's blue, but it's so blue, so clear, that it looks like the sky. So what is this image that we're given in Scripture when Moses and these men go up to meet with the Lord? It is as if the sky is at the feet of the Lord. It is as if the sky, the very heavens, the thing that towers over us in our entire world, it's a footstool to the Lord, nothing more than a footstool. This is how high and exalted and mighty the Lord is. And what is this high and mighty and exalted Lord doing with these flawed, sinful men made of dust? He's eating with them. He's eating with them. He has sat down to have a meal with them. He has brought them up to have communion with them. 
You see, at the end of every covenant ceremony, those entering into the covenant would eat together. Why? Why share a meal? Because in the meal, the goal, the end, the purpose of a covenant is symbolized and is shown. Here here is all that this is pointing to. Here is the main point of what, what Exodus 24 is emphasizing here, is that covenant brings communion. God sits and has a meal with them because covenant brings communion. The abiding, lasting, all-in commitment between the Lord and his people, what's the purpose? Communion, relationship, deep, intimate, faithful relationship. Why does the Lord rescue and redeem a people and make a covenant with them? Communion. Why is blood shed? Communion. What is the, I will be your God and you will be my people? What is that all about? Communion. You see, all that has taken place in Exodus, everything that has happened up to this point is leading to this meal to reveal what? Communion. All of this is about God communing with his people. All of this is about God in relationship with his people. And so the question for us this morning, do we experience communion with the Lord? Do we have relationship with the Lord? Have you experienced the covenantal, faithful, life-transforming rescue and redemption of God that brings you into communion and relationship with him? And if you haven't, why not? Like, what keeps you from a relationship with God? What keeps you from communion? What is it that you see is better? What is it that you see is more satisfying? Well, what other relationship do you value more? What is it that you believe is going to offer you more hope and more life and more joy and more peace and more love? What do you believe is going to offer you more forgiveness and more freedom? See, Exodus 24 in many ways is is a great Christmas Eve sermon. It may not have been the text you were expecting to hear read this morning, but in many ways, this is a perfect Christmas Eve text. Because if we consider that everything in the book of Exodus up to this point has been leading towards this meal, we can also say that everything in the book of Exodus leads us to another meal. What is it that we are celebrating today and tomorrow. We're celebrating Christ coming into our world. We are celebrating God coming to us. We are celebrating that God has come, not in fire and cloud and earthquake, but as a man. The majestic one came in a manger. The one who puts the sky as his footstool walked upon this earth, and he he took normal and common roads and paths. Just think about that for a moment. The one who can make the sky and the heavens his footstool walked on a little path, shared the same dirt that you and I share. And when Jesus came, what did he do? Jesus came, and he loved us. Jesus came and he spoke God's word to us. He brought us righteousness and truth and justice and beauty. When Jesus came, he healed the sick and he raised the dead. When Jesus came, he confronted evil political and religious leaders. He came to undo the power of sin and slavery. Jesus came 
to save us. And all that takes place in the gospel stories, all that we read about Jesus doing, all of it has this moment where it is leading up to Jesus' most important work, dying on a cross. And just before Jesus is sent away to his death, he shares a meal with his disciples. And this is what we read during that meal. Jesus tells them, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hello, Exodus 24. Jesus is taking them back to that moment on a mountain, that meal on a mountain, and he's saying, just as there was blood shed and a table set, There is going to be bloodshed, which this table that is set now represents. The blood that was shed so that there could be relationship between God and his people, Jesus is now going to shed his blood so that we can be in relationship with God. Now catch this. Like blood is shed multiple times in Exodus. Why is that? Because the blood of bulls and rams and goats can't take away sin. All it does is cover sin. But what does the blood of Jesus do? It actually takes away sin. It cleanses it completely. And so Jesus' sacrifice is a greater sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice is what those sacrifices were pointing to. The blood of Jesus shed so that you and I could experience freedom and forgiveness. The blood of Jesus shed so that you and I could have relationship with God. The blood of Jesus that invites us to be in communion. The blood of Jesus that is symbolized by a cup. What do you do with a cup? You drink it. And where do you drink it? At a meal. The blood of Jesus was shed so that you and I can be in communion with God. As much as we think of salvation being freedom and forgiveness and cleansing and transformation, all of those things, yes and amen, we celebrate them. We want to experience them. We want to live out of the goodness of those things. We want you to, you, if you have not experienced it, to experience those things. But all of that, all of that is for a purpose, that you would know God, that you would be in relationship to God, because none of that is good news. None of that matters if we're not in relationship with God. Like the greatest treasure, the greatest good news of all of this is that we could know God, that we could know him as one that we sit at a table with and share a meal with, that we can know him that closely, that intimately, that our relationship with him would be that of a friend. This is what Jesus did. This is why Jesus came. This is what his blood allows to happen. This is the power of Christ's sacrifice. This is why Jesus coming into the world is such good news. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we make a big deal by running ourselves ragged to get presents every year. (laughs) In a small way, we want to mimic, we want to mirror, we want to sort of practice this gift giving because God has given us this ultimate gift, the means by which you and I can be in relationship with him. And so the question this morning, the question that this season asks of us is, are you in relationship with him? Are you in communion with him? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in the blood of Christ that cleanses you and forgives you and sets you free? 
Have you turned from doing life your own way, living by your own word and your own rules and your own sense of right and wrong and defining yourself on your own terms? And have you turned and submitted yourself to the good, life-giving word of God, the word that brings righteousness and goodness and truth, the word that will change you and transform you and allow you to experience true flourishing? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ and experienced the power of the gospel? And if you have this morning, if you have, here's my encouragement to you. No matter what you are experiencing in life, and I am in no ways minimizing the pain, the suffering, the sin that you may have been hurt by, the sin you may feel caught in. I'm not, I'm not minimizing any of the struggle. But I want you to understand that if you are in Christ, if you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, if you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, if you have been transformed by Jesus, here is what is most true about you. You sit at the table of God. You are in relationship with him. He has brought you close. He has brought you near. He loves you. He is for you, and he is working all things for your good. You might not be able to see that. That might might seem like the most, like the the farthest truth, the thing that's furthest from true for you right now. You may feel so disconnected about it. You may think, you don't even know what's happening in my life. That, That just seems very empty. I understand that. I get that. But here's where the gospel rubber meets the road. In spite of those struggles, in spite of that pain, in spite of the sin, in spite of the darkness, this is true. This is what is true. This is what is most true. And so I want to encourage you to hold on to this. Through the pain, through the struggle, hold on to this truth that you sit at the table of God. You are beloved. He's for you, and he is at work in your life. This is the power of Christ This is what Jesus came to accomplish. And Jesus isn't a powerless Savior. He's a powerful Savior. And here is the other part of the good news for us. Christmas, we celebrate Christmas, Christ coming into the world. But we also, as a church, we've been celebrating Advent. And what does Advent mean? Advent means arrival. And so we look back to Christ's first coming, his first arrival, and what does that do? It gives us hope and gives us great anticipation for his second coming. Because the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus came, but that he's also, that he's coming. Jesus is coming again. And all of this, all of life that we are experiencing, all the ups, all the downs, all the pains, all the victories, all the grace that we experience, all of our story, guess where it is heading? Just like the book of Exodus and all of it was heading to a meal, all of this is heading to a meal. One day we are going to sit at the table of our Father, not by faith, but face to face. We are going to see Jesus face to face. Jesus at this meal, this last supper as the disciples, spoke. He said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus promised, I'm coming back. We had a meal now. We're going to have a meal then. So friends, here is our hope Here is our hope. Yes, we have the power of the gospel in our lives now, but our hope one day is another meal, another meal on a mountain. Here is how Isaiah 25 describes this meal. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. 
and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Church, we are waiting. We're waiting. But we're waiting for something glorious. We're waiting for the biggest, best, most delicious feast that we have ever experienced. We are waiting for a day where Jesus will put an end to all the sin and all the suffering and all the death and he will transform our weak and frail and sickly bodies into eternal glory. And we're all going to sit at the largest table in, in eternity and we are going to fellowship with one another and fellowship with Jesus. And we are going to marvel at his grace. Do you realize that, that the thing that you are going through right now, the thing that feels so dark, so heavy, the thing that may feel like it is going to swallow you whole, one day you are going to sit at that table and you're going to look back and you're going to go, look what God did. Look what Jesus did. Look at the power of his grace. Look at the power of his redemption. Look at the power of his salvation. All of that swallowed up in his power. All of that working and leading to this moment where I'm sitting and celebrating. That is where we are headed, church. That is what we celebrate this year. That's what we celebrate now and boy, one day, who we're going to celebrate. And so church, as you sit down with a meal with your friends and family today, tomorrow, in the coming days as you celebrate, let the meal that we are going to experience bring just a bit more joy. Remember the meal on a mountain where God's covenant was sealed in blood. Remember the meal that Jesus had with his disciples where he sealed the covenant in his blood. Remember that we now fellowship with God and that one day we are going to fellowship face to face. Let that be our hope this morning. Let that be our hope this time of year. Church, I hope you have a Merry Christmas in light of all that God has done. Let's pray.